the hard shoulder. With Nissan. Number one for petrol in Ireland. Number one for electric. Nissan. Innovation that excites. This is News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until 7 o'clock this evening and I am delighted to be joined here in studio by George Hamilton. George, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you indeed. Enjoying the sunshine. Ah, well, listen, thanks a million for coming. I know you've been in for Marty this week, so early mornings. Yes, uh, very early mornings, up at five each day. It's it's not the, the favourite part of my day, I have to say, but once up and at it, I thoroughly enjoy playing the music and it's a delight, that show, because it gets such great audience reaction uh, and and. Most of it's positive, which is <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you avoid the culture wars <laughs> yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. You don't have to wade into that. No, uh, so much uh, at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, well, have you got to the point now where when people ask your job, you're, you're what a kind of music presenter, lyric presenter, sp- still always commentator? Yeah, I think I think the commentator thing will never go away. Uh, but the lyric thing is obviously, as, you, as you're aware, become bigger in in recent times. Uh, and I, I'm proud to say that when I went in for uh, for coffee after the show in a little cafe I know in uh, in South Lots Road, I, I was greeted as, as, with the question, "Were you on Lyric?" So I, I felt I'd made that kind of quantum leap. Oh, yeah, you're your man from Lyric yeah. in that person's mind. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, ca- I can't knock it at all. And as I say that, beca- because it, you know, it, it trades on the fact that it's playing music that that, that relaxes people. That the phrases where life sounds better, of course. That uh, that they tend the reaction always tends to be positive because you've taken folk away from the everyday and from things that might be annoying them or things that they're worried about and it's just a kind of a, a safe space to enjoy the music and let let your thoughts be be positive for a while. It's funny because you know when, when you started the job I, I I was probably guilty like a lot of people of having maybe a two-dimensional uh, 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 kind of picture of mm. George Hamilton you know you were just you were the sports commentator yeah. and that's the prison yeah. through which we were exposed yeah. to you and it'd be a little like you know if Brian O'Driscoll suddenly wrote a gardening book today <laughs> it would be kind of it seemed completely incongruous but for all I know he's out in his garden all the time working yeah. away music, music was a big part of music your life al- music has always been a big part of my life ever since I was a nipper and my mum wanted me to learn how to play the piano she was a singer my dad was a singer he sang uh, semi-professionally uh, but they didn't play instruments but they wanted me to learn the piano and it was through the piano that I got to play learn to play the cello because when that started off and kids in class were being taught the basics of, of music, uh, obviously the basic is the melody line. That's in the treble clef. The cello is played on the bass clef. Anybody learning the piano could read the bass clef, read the music for a cello. So that's where I was put at the very start when I, it became stringed instruments that were being taught. And so it developed into a seat in the orchestra for the six years or whatever it was. I was at the Methodist College in Belfast. And then from there, obviously the seeds were sown in my head. I was like any other teenager. I had my favourite rock bands, mm. still enjoy rock music, still enjoy Billy Joel. But... The classical music was there all the time and it's kind of bubbled to the surface. Uh, and then I got the, the opportunity, it's almost 20 years ago now, to start up on Lyric. Uh, and and there there came the third dimension. But in fairness to you, Karen, you know, why wouldn't you think of me as the sports guy? Because it was sport that I always wanted to do. And I felt yeah. considered myself very fortunate when I got the break via current affairs into sport in Belfast way back then. And one thing led to another. Uh, so... I mean, when you were in the orchestra then playing the cello or playing the piano or whatever it happened to be or even playing along to James Taylor, whoever, yes. whatever you were doing. Another favourite, by the way. Uh, it, it was it was sport. That was yeah. always the ambition. Oh, yes, it was. I mean, I, I wanted to play, first of all. Well, I wasn't good enough or big enough at school to play for the first, 11, first 15 in the rugby. Uh, but I played rugby up to the second 15, which I thought was an achievement for me given that there were five 15s, five senior 15s in the school. Okay. But, but when I left and went to Queen's University in Belfast... I got to play what I really wanted to play, which was soccer. Uh, and I, I had good years there doing that. 
very nearly signed for an Irish league team, but because it was languages I was studying, I had to go away for a year. And when I was approached to join, it was Portadown Football Club by their then manager, Gibby McKenzie. I said, I can't, I can't. I'm going to Germany for a year. And I was furious, but I had to do it because that was my long-term education. And when I came back, uh, Gibby had said, ring me up and I'll sign you then. When I came back, Gibby had been sacked. He was gone. The chance was <laughs> oh, gone. gone. My <laughs> football career had stalled before it even started. Uh, what was Germany like, pre-unification Germany? It was very, very interesting, I'll tell you that. Mm. It, it was a, a wonderful experience. They sent me to a town called Mülheim on the Ruhr, which is not far from Dusseldorf, industrial area, away from the tourist attractions. And it, it enabled me to get right into to German society for that year. And I had an absolutely wonderful time. I travelled a lot. I met a lot of Germans. I made a lot of friends and it was very, very interesting to see the change that took place in Germany over those years until the point of unification. I mean, I was in East Germany on, on a number of occasions, East, East Berlin, and mm. it was very interesting to see the other side of the wall and how things actually were there. And indeed, after unification, when I was in Germany for the, the World Cup in 2006, I exited the magnificent new Hauptbahnhof and, and got into a taxi. And the obvious question to ask in the taxi, because the Hauptbahnhof and our hotel were in the Old East, which part are you from? And he said he was an engineer from East Berlin who had lost his job because the company had been taken over by a big Western concern who had immediately rationalised and he was out the door. Mm. But he said the life that he'd had as an engineer had been very satisfactory. They had a very nice apartment. He had a nice car and they had all they ever needed. So that kind of story never got told on, on the, in the West. It was all about getting rid of this awfulness. Uh, but in fact, pe people, there were people in East Germany uh, and indeed maybe even further afield in the, in, the, in the Warsaw Pact countries who were actually doing okay in the context that they lived in and didn't really want to be anywhere else. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting you say that. There's a great podcast I listened to, The Rest is History, and they, they interviewed a, an author recently, and I can't remember her name. I'll look it up after this. Um, but uh, she's written recently written a book about her life experience growing up in East Germany, and, and the kind of the tenor of it is, you know what, it was more normal. She wasn't kind of saying, listen, it was fine, like let's bring back the Stasi or anything yeah. like that, or go back in time. But she said it was much more normal than people in the West think it was. Yeah. It was actually just run-of-the-mill stuff is what we did every day, the same stuff you did every day. That's it. That's exactly right. I mean, when we went in, we, we I was very fortunate to be covering athletics in West Berlin in, in 1988, which was obviously the last summer before the wall came mm. down. And uh, I was with my colleague, the late Tony O'Donoghue and the producer, Morris Reedy. And we extended our stay after the Friday night athletics into the Saturday, getting the la last plane out so that we could go to East Berlin on the Saturday just to see it. Yeah. And it was normal. Of course, the shops weren't full of consumer goods the way they were in the West, but there were restaurants that people were eating and everything was cheap, you know, because you were going in with your Western money, which you had to change. Yeah. They wouldn't let you in without changing some money. Uh, and you, could, you couldn't spend it because it, it just bought so much. It was yeah. cheap. And, and, it, and the, pe the people weren't as dour as, as, as they appeared from afar. I mean, it was just, it was just another part of Germany with a different, different rules and regulations. Uh, but as you say, the people were, were getting on with their lives in, in a, in a relatively normal way. And this so this was part of your studies that you had to go to Germany for a year. That 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 story obviously from 88 as you say but you were yeah. in Germany. So um the the troubles would have broken out when you were in Queens. I mean how how much of your horizon did that occupy? Very little funnily enough. Uh now I put it into context my first Wednesday as a student at Queens was the day of the first 
civil rights march mm. uh, into the centre of Belfast. So that so that kind of gives you the perspective of, of where I was at that time. And then obviously the things got a lot worse over the, the five years as it was, four plus one away in Germany, that I was actually studying. You know, Queen's had a, a, a tall library there, nine stories high, and there were these little carols in among the books up, up on the, the upper floors, which was quite quiet, a good place to study. And I'd often go up there to spend three hours with my books. And the, one side of the library looked down over central Belfast and on many an occasion you would you would hear the bang and you'd look out and you'd see the smoke going up yeah. and that would be another bomb going off. So, yes, there were, the troubles were going on all around. Yes, uh, there wasn't the social life that you might have expected beyond the confines of the university. But within the students' union and everything around that, it was what seemed to me as normal a student experience as anybody else would have been having anywhere else because life centred on the university. It kind of became, a, it was something of a haven, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was, from very much that. so, very much so. And there was none of that in there. Now, the interesting thing is I, I come from a Presbyterian background. I got to know my first Catholic friend at Queen's. Oh, yeah. And the first day. And then you could go around and say, some of my best friends are Catholics. Yeah, <laughs> That's it. Tom Egan, he now, he now lives in Australia. But uh, he sat beside me. We sat beside each other in the yeah. first French lecture and we just hit it off. And uh, it was only, who are you? I'm Tom, I'm George. And off we went. Uh, and the, the issue about religion never, never reared its head until mm. the obvious question. When you, well, Did you go to? Yes. Well, then that marked you as either one or the other. You know, the school that you went to. Ah, yes. Okay. Uh, so, so I obviously went to the Methodist College and I can't remember where he went. But it, but it was obviously a Catholic school, and but that was the only point at which it became of any relevance. Uh, and how, how you because you went to the BBC after yeah. after Queens. university, um, and what what year was it you joined RTE? Uh, 79, 79. I went to do the. Uh, I, I was doing football commentary for BBC Northern Ireland, and um, RTE were covering the World Cup in nineteen seventy eight, and they had Jimmy McGee. Mm. And Philip Green, they're two regular commentators on TV and radio. They'd hired Billy George, uh, who was working for what was then the Cork Examiner, who did radio reports for them. So he was hired as a commentator. But they reckoned they needed four, and they were stuck for a fourth. And then Mike Horgan, the late Mike Horgan, the late great Mike Horgan sports editor, said, what about the chap up the road? I wonder would he be interested? And I got a letter from Fred Cogley. Oh, and God, he said, yeah. He said, uh, I, I don't want to be raising a hair here because there might be some colleagues uh, in, inside who would uh, object to the fact that we hired in from outside. But if I were to suggest that you might be interested, would you be interested? Well, I was straight back down the post box to get the letter back to him because you, you didn't ring up in those days. You posted letters. Yes. But, uh, but I sent the letter back by return to post. Yes, please. I'm on. And so I did that. The six matches in four weeks in, in Mendoza, which nobody had ever heard of then, but now everybody knows it's the wine capital yes. of Argentina. Um, and we got to sample the wine while we were there, which was terrific. Uh, every day's a school day, eh? But, uh, <laughs> but I came back from that World Cup uh, and got a call from Fred again saying, listen, uh, they'd, like to, they'd like to take you on a, on a more permanent basis. Yeah. So 2nd of January 1979, I moved, moved south. And, and what was the first, and maybe it was at that World Cup, the first kind of pinch me moment you had... It was the World Cup, yeah. In commentary. It yeah. was that World Cup. Yeah, it was, we, we, we went Dublin, London, Madrid, Buenos Aires. And yeah. it was sitting in Madrid airport waiting for the uh, the, the flight to uh, Buenos Aires and seeing Gunter Netzer. And I was big into German football because there were nine Bundesliga teams near where I lived. And every Saturday I was at a Bundesliga match. So I probably knew more about the Bundesliga than I did about the English First Division. Yes. I'd certainly seen more uh, live Bundesliga matches than I ever had seen in the English First Division. And there was Gunter Netzer, who was a big star at the time, recently retired, now being a pundit. And I, and I was sitting beside him on the plane. 
I did. I didn't realize this was going to happen. You know, we're in the queue, and then yeah. suddenly I'm on the plane, and I'm, I'm sitting beside Gunter. You didn't Nassar. ask him for an autograph, then, no, George, I didn't. But did I, I got, got Pele's autograph on that trip. Oh, did you? Yeah, again in an airport queue, leaving Mendoza. He was just ahead of me in the line, and he signed it, "Su amigo Pele, your friend Pele." And he's a lovely, lovely fellow. Ah, oh, great. But do you so still have Nassar. it? I do. Yeah. Ah, I that's do. great. Yeah. yeah. Um. So uh, that. That that was the huge moment. I mean, the, all the other huge moments, we, 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 we could talk about them all. We actually had Ray Houghton on earlier in the week because it was 30 years yeah, this week. The, 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 the goal, yeah, the 88, uh, putting the ball on the English net uh, and all of that. Um, what stands out for you, though, is the, the, the most important moment in your career? Oh, that's a very, very hard one. And uh, that, that's a bit like playing cricket and the, and the fast one came in at me there. Yes. I wasn't quite ready for that. Um I don't know what the most important aspect of the career. I suppose looking back across the years, uh, in terms of the thing that has uh, made me noticed, if you like, is that afternoon in Genoa and that yes. penalty kick. And I can't get away from that because if it's a, a straightforward, what is the most important? Well, that has to be the most important. Well, George, now you say you can't get away from it. You put it on the front of your autobiography. <laughs> that you wasn't know? my choice, you, you know. You quoted yourself there. <laughs> that, that wasn't my choice. Connor Graham, very impressed. He insisted. Well, we, we, they approached me to do the book and he said, he said, now there's one thing before we discuss anything, the title has to be. And I, said, <laughs> I didn't want to call it that. I had a far better title, which I thought was... Uh, what, because was the, what was the title you wanted? The title I wanted was a bit of an oddball title, but it mightn't have, it mightn't have encouraged people to buy it. But it was to do with the fact that, uh, you know, I travel a lot and uh, I would be having stuff laid out on my desk at home and yeah. my wife would be tidier than me and uh, I would be saying things like that. I'm off to Barcelona don't throw anything out and that was going to be the title of the book <laughs> that's a nice title as well actually I like it anyway a nation holds its breath yeah. people want to go down to the bookshops and, and, and grab a copy they can I guess uh, yeah, yeah yeah you're right of course that's going to be a huge moment I guess that was probably as well what that that was kind of an inflection point in Irish society, it wasn't was, it? It was. Oh, I, um, I mean, there are people who say that Jack Jordan's football team sparked the Celtic Tiger. I don't believe that. But it was all of a piece in this big jigsaw, mm. the big big piece that went in in one corner that said, Irish people now have a chance to show themselves to the outside world. Because if you think about the Irish sporting history, Gaelic games are, are Irish. They are often spoken of as our games. Mm. So it's not something for others. It's for us, Yes, our games. So the association football team qualifies for the very first time for a major tournament. And suddenly there is a reason to put on a green shirt and go abroad and say, hey, I'm Irish. And that's what those football fans did, first in Germany, then in Italy, subsequently in the United States. All those three championship final tournaments under Jack Charlton. So in that sense, those 10 years were pivotal in Irish society growing into something bigger than it was. And in that context, things like the Celtic Tiger could happen. Mm. Self-confidence grew and it became much more of a, a thing, a positive thing in the outside world, being Irish. And how much, when you were away with those Irish teams, uh, be it qualifying uh, uh, matches um, or at the tournaments themselves, how much access would you have had to players? Oh, it, was, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant back then. We had total access. I mean, right down to the very last match of Jack Charlton's era, where we stayed, as we usually did, in the team hotel. That match was was a playoff against the Netherlands yes. at Anfield. We stayed in Chester, in the same hotel as the team. Uh, my colleagues all went off earlier than I did to Anfield because 6-1 news and various bits and pieces had to be done. I stayed behind until about 4 o'clock and drove myself in a hire car. 
And my vivid memory of, of leaving the hotel was as I left my room to go down the corridor, standing in the corridor in a towel, wearing only a towel because he'd clearly just come out of a shower and playing that night was Mark Kennedy. You know, so yeah. that close to a player on the day of the game. But go back to Stuttgart and the, and the Ray Houghton goal, 12th of June. When we got back to the hotel, again, where we were staying with the team, it was a little hotel in a forest, a lovely German hotel, you know, all the Fachwerk and all that on the outside, the Wald Hotel in Degerloch. And the place was rammed with fans. Open house, Jack had them all in. He was lapping it up. <laughs> you know, we'd beaten England 1-0. Yeah. And they, you're very welcome. Come on and have a drink. And there was hardly, hardly room to move. That's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I remember uh, one of your colleagues in kind of sports journalism talking about um, maybe why some of the players that came after that team weren't as beloved. Uh, and and the reason they gave, and I'm not, maybe you don't buy it at all, was that it, the access kind of dried up a bit mm. and the, a, a division kind of, you know, began to become apparent yeah. between the, the fan, even not only E working mm. on it, but the fans as well yeah. and the players. And, yeah. and, it became harder to identify with them. Yeah, I, w- I would go along with that. Okay. And I, I think that, you know, it, it, it was all to do with the fact that access became more restricted, that it was less a, of an opportunity to, to spend time with them, to get to know them as individuals. Where in the past, you would have been able to just sit down and have a coffee. If, you know, if, if Niall Quinn's sitting in the lobby of the hotel, do you mind if I join you? And he'd say no. And you sit down and you'd natter away about this, that and the other. Mm. And you got to know them as people as well as, as footballers. Whereas now everything is stage managed and you meet them at press conferences or in pre-arranged in- interviews. And it's not the same at all. You don't, and you don't travel on the same aircraft. You don't stay in the same hotel. It's all, it's all very different. I mean, the closest relationship I had with anybody to do with the team in latter years was Martin O'Neill. And that was because I got to know him as a younger man. He had been a student at Queen's the same time as me. He had gone to Nottingham Forest, played for Northern Ireland, captain Northern Ireland, and I was working for the BBC. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I, I, I got to know him in that era where you did have this kind of access. And I, I kind of have a punctuation mark about it, and it's the defeat by France, you know, the Thierry Henry yes. uh, handball. Do you know and how I watched that? But I tell you, sorry to interrupt your story. That's all right. I was in Vancouver, and we we had a laptop in front of us, and we were what we were connected by Skype to a laptop in Donegal, <laughs> and the person in Donegal had their laptop facing the television. Oh my god! It was the only way we could watch it. At least Three you got two to, laptops at, at, on Skype on a telly. At least you got to see it. Yes, maybe it would be better if you hadn't. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, to, just to to conclude the story. Normally, my function ended with the full-time whistle. Uh, but on this occasion, because uh, of the timings or whatever, Tony O'Donoghue was required for the news. So there was nobody to go to the mixed zone where the players have to walk through on their way to get out of the stadium. Uh, and there's no obligation on them to, to stop. Yeah, That's the whole point of the thing. They can head down, beats headphones on, walk straight through. This very often happens. But I was there with a cameraman at my shoulder and uh, the Irish players were coming out one by one and all you can do is call their name and hope they might look your way. Without exception, every one of them, when they saw it was me, came and talked because they all knew me, even though they were shattered at the experience and what had happened to them and the dream of going to South Africa and the World Cup had gone. Every one of them came to say whatever it was they had to say. And that was only because they knew me because of the circumstances that they had grown up in as internationals. Yes. But it was now ending, it was now over, and those who came behind were never going to have that kind of relationship Mm. with a commentator or a journalist again. Yeah, and look, and I think kind of the... I think the sports and the players suffer a bit from it and it's trickled down to all these other sports. Anyway, we we, we could talk about that all day. Before I let you go, I do want to ask, is there another sporting moment you wish you had commentated on? Oh, um, probably Johnny Sexton's drop goal 
in the Parc de France, oh, yes. in the Stade de France, uh, after the 42 phases or whatever it was, yes. to, to, to seal that uh, wonderful, wonderful victory. Um, I had the great good fortune to commentate on Brian O'Driscoll's hat-trick as a 21-year-old in the Stade de France when mm. Ireland won for the first time since the 70s. Uh, and that was just incredible. Uh, and there are, you know, sometimes I see things on Twitter that remind me of moments that, I, that, that I've actually done. Mm. But when you ask me about one that I didn't do and I would love to have done, it would have been that because I did a Scotland game uh, in, in Paris as it happened and there was a moment in that when Gavin Hastings broke free, left to right, just got away from the cover. You'd never have backed him in a sprint and he'd no. have the field to go, but he made it. But the drama of that and the drama of Italy winning a match in the old uh, stadium that they used before they went to the Olympico, you know, those moments uh, stand out. And that Sexton moment would have been one of those as you built the thing up to a crescendo. You're, just, you're riding the wave of the, of the action. Yes. Uh, and of course, that, that wave gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the moment that Sexton's in the pocket and the ball's on its way over the bar. And it's just, that, that would have been the one. Yeah, well, listen, what a moment. Uh, listen, a career full of great moments, though, George, and uh, uh, plenty of great music as well uh, ahead, I'm sure, 20 years uh, on Lyric, many more years to come. It's been an absolute pleasure. Listen, thanks uh, my a million. Pleasure, my pleasure entirely, Kieran. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, George Hamilton, you can hear him uh, uh, at the weekend uh, on Lyric. Uh, are you, Marty's back tomorrow, though. Marty's back tomorrow. Marty's back tomorrow. Uh, I'm on a Monday again. Maybe he's not. Uh, he's, he's back from Verona tomorrow. That's heavy, what it is. He's taking the long road back. Heavy Sunday night. Yeah, that, that'll happen. be it. Book, and I, and book, I'm, book, book, yeah. book George, and he said. And I'm, <laughs> I'm on Saturday and Sunday from 10. 